You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Shields is a professor and a polemicist whose books include How Literature Saved My Life and Reality Hunger. Caleb Powell is a stay-at-home father and a writer and the blogger behind Notes of a Sexist Stay-at-Home Father. Their new book is I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel. Thank you for joining me, David and Caleb. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. You know, I was going to have you guys do a reading from this book, but since this book is essentially a four-day long conversation between the two of you. It seems somewhat repetitive, so... Uh, yeah, and, you know, I can't speak for David, but the, the reading scenario as a venue for, you know, you, know, you go to readings, I m- would much rather go to a, listen to an author just talk, talk about his book, talk about his life. And, and if he does that, it would make a much more compelling argument for me to buy the book. When I read a book, I mean... I've al- already read it, and I don't want to, you know, listen to someone reread it. And if I haven't read it, I want to stop. I want to go back a page. I want to reread. I want to think about stuff. But if the reader is going on and I'm caught into what he just said, I'm missing what he is currently saying. So I often find readings quite counterproductive to me. And at the same time, I want to support my writer friends, so I often go to the readings in the last 10, 15 minutes so I can have a beer with them afterwards and talk rather than actually okay, sit for it. the entire reading. All right, David, you I, talk. I, I just wanted to quarrel with your description of me as a polemicist in the sense that, you know, I've written, this is my 16th written or, or co-written book, and, and one or two of the books touch on on literary theory and prophecy and philosophy, and so... I just would, that's, that's, I think of myself as a writer of book-length essay. Some of them are, are novels, some of them are, some, a few of them deal with sports. I remember when I, I wrote a couple of books on sports, I suddenly became something called a sports writer. So, anyway. so you don't consider yourself polemical at all? I, aren't all essays by definition a polemic? That's how I tend Absolutely to think of Absolutely not. The whole point of an essay is for the writer to question himself. Well, it's not all or, or none, herself. but Black Planet had had I think nothing I involving. Think, there I was nothing of, involving controversy in I think Black of Planet. My work is being hugely invested in basically the quote of Yeats. I absolutely love is out of our arguments with other people we make politics. Out of our arguments with ourselves we make poetry. I'm just totally wedded to Yeats's notion of art and the idea that I'm on the side of making arguments with other people is the role of polemics. I'm not, say, Christopher Hitchens or, uh, um, you know, some polemicist who has an idea and just pushes the idea forward. I'm endlessly questioning myself, in my view. Well, uh, to me, that's a polemicist, uh, someone who, who speaks to ideas and argues about them and brings them out, and, and uh, it's uh, a public dissection, a vi- public vivisection of words and ideas. I like that. I, but I would also say private, any, too. I would say <laughs> any, anyone who discusses something that's controversial. Sure. So with, with NBA and race, that's a controversial subject. There's no way around that no matter how much you're searching for yourself, you're going to involve these grander questions just by the very nature of what you're writing about. And the same thing with the death of the novel or, or uh, plagiarism, which was m- uh, some of the main topics of reality hunger. Well, right. I mean, I think of a book like, again, I, again, it's a very small point. I don't, I don't mean to sound wildly defensive. No. He's I'm certainly just, a minor polemicist. He's I'm not, just, he's not, I'm just, not I'm, wearing like it on his instance, head. Like, for instance, a book like, say, the, the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead, a book published I published six years ago. You know, it's a book that explores human mortality and myself and my father and the greater population and how do we wrestle with it. I don't have any particular polemic to push. I'm just, I, all of us ought to look up what polemics, a polemicist means, I'm pretty sure it has to do with someone who has an idea 
and wants to jam it down people's throats. And mm. I'm, I really don't want to be that person. Well, for me, a, a polemicist, as I say, it's a, it's a public dissection because yeah. nobody can dam jam any idea down. <laughs> right. I right. You know, uh, this is such an interesting book, just in terms of its concept. Uh, how did you get this uh, the green light for this book? Did, was it before or after the movie deal? And and this is of not of not an unimportant question when it comes to this sort of thing. Right. Well, I mean, a huge number of movie studios were competing. No, I'm just joking. I mean. <laughs> The, um, you know, basically, and obviously, please, Caleb, jump in as needed. I don't want to be the polemicist here. But, um, you know, mm -hmm. basically, I, I, I've never written a book proposal in my life. I've never received an advance for a book before writing it. I've always written the book and then tried to find a publisher, which, again, I think is sort of one with my anti-polemical stance. All of my books are kind of low concept. They don't, it's not like, oh, gee, I have a biography of Marilyn Monroe and we have secret access to Marilyn Monroe's dental records. You know, I don't have those kinds of books. I have books that, if they're any good, they're good line by line. And so basically, what's that wonderful line of David Wojohn's about, I'm tired of my, of my, of the thoughts that I steer by. I was sort of weary, in a way, post-reality hunger, of being perceived a sort of literary polemicist. And I wanted to under, undermine, undo that role. I think in the book I actually say I'm weary of myself as a sort of pamphleteer or some kind of, of literary theorist, which I'm really not. And so I wanted to do a book arguing against myself. I tried to do it on my own in which I used transcripts of interviews and argued both sides of questions. That quickly got very boring. And then I tried a couple of former students, uh, people who have, have reviewed my work negatively, and we tried to engage. And it, the gap was so large between them and me that I couldn't even, in, the gears never meshed. So I turned to Caleb, whom who was my student 25 years ago, and we've been in touch a little bit over the last several years. I knew him to be a smart, confrontational, witty guy who naturally disagrees with me on many subjects, but that we have somehow a shared grammar, a shared kind of begrudging respect, I would say. And so basically then James Franco is my former student as well at, at Warren Wilson. After we did the book, I showed the book to James, and James wanted to make a film of it. Wow. Um, ah, I spilled my coffee. I took a class with David fall of 1988, at a, and this was at the same time he was uh, just arriving at the University of Washington, so it his, was his first quarter as well. And What were you, a junior? I was a... Uh, maybe a junior, yeah, mm -hmm. eighty-eight. So yeah, that w I would have been starting my junior year. Anyway, I don't think it was unimaginable that we'd ever, e I would ever even take a class with him. I, I think. Uh, you mean do a project? Again? I, I like the workshop setting, but I walked away thinking that he probably disliked me. And I did. I suspected the I exact him, same thing from you. I found him completely wearing. Um, at this time, though, individual. I was I was in my God phase. I was I was, I had been a Christian in name only, and I had just gone into this big, massive uh, faith where I would proselytize to other people. I would, and and this was a subject of my writing. No wonder he found you wearing. And and and, you know, I, I was a. Uh, I can teach you the truth if you just listen listen to me attitude and uh and that bothered my fellow students and I was completely oblivious to this and at the same time of course David was not nominating me for any prizes um but from 1988 till about 1990 I I had lost my faith and I had written a short story in the University of Washington that was published by the University of Washington Daily and I bumped into David on campus, and we recognized each other. 
and he had read the story and said, hey, are you still writing? Uh, and he was teaching a novel class, and he uh, suggested that I take it. And so I submitted a writing sample, and I took two more classes. And by this time, I still think we hated each other. But by this time, I think strong. we... That's a little strong. I didn't hate We didn't you. hate. We... we, we <laughs> there was a gap. You're the one that uses... There was a gap between... We didn't hate each other. We had a very, very big respect. I, I lived for the classes. I loved going in there, but... Whenever you 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 know you, you know you had us read thirty you know thirty minutes of Ted Mooney's Easy Travel to Lonely Planets, other planets, other planets, Easy Travel to other planets. We'd have to talk about this book, and we you know twenty classes, thirty minutes of this book, and it was the only book we talked about, and it was the structure of a novel, and it's it's a novel about a uh, f- female research scientist who st- has a love affair with a dolphin. So I, I mean, talk, talk about it's a great novel. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. So, but anyway, it was great, but it was worth one thirty-minute portion of class, not twenty. <laughs> and this, this, and of course, you know, David has changed much as a uh, his pedag- you know, teach, teaching pedagogy as far as like he doesn't teach these books, he doesn't write fiction, he would never consider, or may, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but I, I just I felt like I had a lot of beefs and dislike for a lot of things that happened. But at the same time, I had a grudging respect. I felt a little bit of glee if he praised something of mine. And I felt, you know, that he was very hard on my work, too. And, and But I liked that. It wasn't that. very good. It was bad. Uh, uh, you know. Anyway. And anyway, you wouldn't, I wouldn't you're be just, here. You're just, you're just sort of waft like... It's an interview, Caleb. You can't just endlessly talk for ten you talk, minutes. You talk for five you minutes to, to start this off about the same an, same stuff. I know, you, but you're, you're like to, set on default. I know, but you've got the to same have things. Oh, I'm not a polemicist. Like and then, no, then five minutes later, you go, oh, I'm such my controversial work reality hunger. No, you're patting yourself on the you back. You can't just wander in your discussion. Like, this is being broadcast worldwide Rick, did, did to you know the any, United Nations. What was, I, was, was what I was saying relevant? Vaguely. Okay, I mean. Okay. Mr. Relevant, let's go. You continue. You you just went let's you you, you just Rick. went from this point let's immediately to, to Franco. He asks us a question. You try to answer it with a certain. How, how focus. did you be? How did you begin? I mean. Well, here's a quote I'll read to you, and I think this is a pretty good idea of where you're going with this book. The goal is to use, face your own contradictions and blow them up until they become emblematic of human tragedy, and I think that's a pretty good goal for just about any form of art or anybody who's going to do anything remotely resembling art, whether they're writing a kitchen window epiphany novel of literature or <laughs> a cheesy space opera or a two-person Socratic dialogue from exactly. the, for well, the 21st century. Thank you for focusing mm-hmm. on that, p- that, that line, which is a little bit of my paraphrase of something the poet Tony Hoagland once said to me. It's just such a beautiful phrase, and I think it is a useful divining rod between me and Caleb because I am hugely interested in harvesting my own contradictions. The work that I really love from Heraclitus to Maggie Nelson harvests the writer's own contradictions. And the way that I've endlessly harangued Caleb, he's working on a book now, I think, about his own complicated relationship to the Muslim religion. I was uh If I engaged, could just please well, finish. Um, that, you know, that so much of what I've urged Caleb over the last 25 years, and especially the last five, is to, Caleb is a polemicist who has certain dug-in ideas, and I'm saying that is so boring. Harvest your own contradictions. Great art, whether it's a Shakespearean character, a poem by Emily Dickinson, Homer, anything. What makes great art is the embodiment of contradiction. And the thing I've tried to become, which I, you know, I'm always trying to become that, and which I've always urged urged Caleb toward, is not to be afraid of your own contradictions. Don't pretend that you're that you're more certain than you really are. Um, are yeah, you more I'd like to. And you really are. Inside, I mean, sometimes it's a bluff when I, uh, you know, I, I can't have, I can't qualify everything I say with. Well, some of the times I feel this way, some of the times I feel another way. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, if you were to quantify everything before you say it, you would add double the words to what you're saying. Um, 
but I do see myself a lot more as as a polemicist. I know we have enough Christopher Hitchens in the world uh, or Bill Mayers, but I think Bill there Maher, are. Bill I think, isn't it? Bill Maher. But there are, there are some very important topics that are not ambiguous, yet the world thinks that they do. As far as this, uh, my relationship with Islam, I mean, um, one of my four grandparents was born in Iran. My father was born in Lebanon, and from satanic verses to now, I mean, we just had the Charlie Hebdo massacre, and I, you know, have worked in the Middle East. I was engaged to a Muslim woman, and then I had a very close friendship with someone, one of my former students, who is uh, still in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, David is saying, okay, you have to look at the contradictions, and I agree with him wholeheartedly on this. And I think one thing that I've changed through my relationship and through my own, own writing is that I can't come up with just another book that says, says the same old platitudes about how we can change this. And I have to give both sides credence, but at, at that time, I'm also aware that I'm not really making a statement if I give everyone, say that everyone's right. Um, one, one of the more profound aspects of our book is our conversation about Nicholson Baker's uh, Human Smoke. And I, I'm not saying that the world might think it's profound, but I personally thought that it moved the way I look at uh, and the way that I judged Human Smoke and the Holocaust. Um, and David's point is that you have to look at evil inside yourself. And I think he was talking about how Franson is always saying evil's out there. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think that that's why the world is so messed up, is that these terrorists are certain that everyone else is evil but them. And, and at the same time, those who supported the Iraq war have, the, well, they're evil, and we're not capable of it. And because of that, we're, we're, we have this dialectic, and there's, there's no solution unless we get to say, hey, you know, when I get angry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like, attack someone, and I might do something wrong, and I could gravely commit a, a sin. And, and so, okay. continue, Dave. I, I, no, I just I wanted think, to, it's supposed to be a conversation. Let's let Rick, you know, you talk well, part uh, of the conversation. You, you talked about something that interested me. It was that the terrorists think people are evil, and that's why they're going around killing Charlie Hebdo and whatever else. And I might, my perception of it is, is that bottom line, somebody who kills another person, murders some, another person, whether with an airplane, a gun, a bat, or a, a garrote in an English country manor house, is a murderer. And that's all they are. They're nothing more. They can, yeah. After the murder, they can say, oh, I did it because my religion told me to. I did it because the devil told me to. I did it because Jane Austen told me to. I don't care. You're a murderer. You're nothing more. And when you give them the when you say, oh, they're terrorists, you've granted them a, a power that they don't have to have. You can just say, they're murderers, and that's all they are. They're criminals. They're morons. In Taiwan, they have a policy where they don't publicize any crimes or trials. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of Every sense. Every murderer, they, they, they arrest, and that's it. Newspaper, no newspaper coverage. The families might know about it, and that's a very interesting way. I mean, I, I don't know how well it correlates with the very low crime rate in Taiwan, and uh, but it's an interesting uh, thing to think about, that to contemplate. That isn't that, that's a fascinating idea. What they do in Taiwan, <coughs> I mean, I guess for me, you guys might have, by nature, maybe a somewhat more public imagination than I do. I think of you know, I mean, perhaps I even quote this in the book in relationship to our discussion of Nicholson Baker, but I quote the line of Goethe's who says, you know, no, you know, I forget how he says it, but essentially no, one, ha no one has ever committed a crime that I couldn't imagine myself committing. I forget, it's, it's yeah, approximately no, that. It. Yeah, yeah. And, and that basically, you know, or um, the famous Latin aphorisms, which, which goes basically nothing human is foreign to me, you know, and that basically, yes, we can call this person a terrorist or a murderer or a criminal or a convict or whatever, but the essential thing for me where things get interesting is whether through an imagination, through contemplation, through research, through juxtaposition, to try to understand you know, on some level, murderous parts of 
ourselves as well so that you know I'm to try to imagine which doesn't in any way condone or anything what people do but I think understanding in my view progresses when one wrestles with less savory parts of oneself like for instance just to you know like this book I wrote you know 15 years ago in which I'm also I'm making a film of with Franco Black Planet you know the easy version of that book would have been in which I just sort of wagged a finger about how horrible racism is but to the to the degree that book is still I hope semi-interesting are, are ways in which I try and trace the roots of some of my incipient racism or the ways in which I'm capable of racism, the ways in which race plays a role in my marriage with my wasp wife. And, you know, that rather than I'm really interested in art that gets to very uncomfortable truths about the author and narrator and speaker. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, and I don't, don't even think I've asked you about this, but what do you think about the current problems with Ferguson, Eric Garner, the Cleveland pr playground shooting. I, I, I mean, does this come up in Black Planet at all? Will it? Uh, the film version? Yeah, yeah I we're mean. We're talking about I, it a little bit. It, it, it's odd. You know, we had Emmett Till and Rosa Parks and these grand causes and that seem to unite people. This one is, is polemical. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I see good people on both sides of the argument and, and, and two sides of the argument. You know, we, we shouldn't judge police officers. We shouldn't judge minorities um and yet this this is causing a lot of tension and it's horrible you know the two two police shootings right i just wanted now, to throw out and hear any of your opinions on that uh, let me suggest that that is the bailiwick of uh fiction where you can where in a good novel or a good short story or a good movie you can immerse yourself in the perceptions of somebody on the wrong side of the equation or on the opposite side of the equation where you happen to lie and you find yourself identifying with a really terrible person. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, <laughs> that's uh, the new Martin Amos novel. Uh, the Zone of Importance, I think it's called. Uh, is right. It's so in the camp. A camp uh, yeah. yeah. And your protagonist is uh, a man who's participating in mass murder. Mm -hmm. And he's not unhappy about that, but as the, as the story goes on, you find yourself, in, you know, bonding with this guy. And it's mm -hmm. very, very creepy experience. Wow, that sounds like an impressive attempt. I haven't read it, that book. But, I mean, I, I would definitely argue that the book-length essay or the essay can easily do that as well. I mean, I mm -hmm. think of maybe... A canonical example is George Orwell's shooting an elephant in which he really sort of shows, do you guys know that essay? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just good. a great, great essay in which he explores, he tells you more about imperialism and racism and colonialism in, in 10 pages than, you know, the huge majority uh, of full-length books in which he really shows it's you only how 10 pages i thought it was a longer essay m maybe 30. 15 no oh, it's really? not it's not that long at all okay, maybe <laughs> and um you know basically it's i definitely don't want to say that the province of wrestling with moral quandaries is somehow the province of fiction but i i think your point rick is well taken that you know we can imagine ourselves into Macbeth or iago or the underground man or whatever now um one of the things I really like in this book is uh, that uh, your I enjoyed your discussion about George W. Bush and evil. Is he mm -hmm. evil or is he not? And because that's a, a that's a really interesting problem. We've that's something that we in this country have to better darn well deal with because his progeny politically are rapidly uh, reproducing over there and everywhere and taking over uh, Washington. Right. Well, I mean, Bush's brother is a likely candidate for president yet again. Oh, there's, there, <laughs> there's a horror story as far as I'm concerned for the for two years from now. I, I think that's hyperbole. I mean, if, if you know, I, I, the idea that Bush, and again, I ar argue this in the book, and I think it could have gone on a lot longer. 
but then it probably would have hurt the book. Um, the idea that conservatives are evil and is is no, I wouldn't say conservatives are evil, but there's a the certain George Bush, Dick Cheney axis, or or, or you yeah, know, the, the George the Bush, Dick Cheney, uh, what's his name? Rum, not Rumpel, Rumfeld. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, partly that we I, never I define just, evil. I was using it in a relatively casual sense. What is evil? That's conscious the malevolence, murder consciously performed for malevolent. I mean. I don't know if we ever in the book defined it. No, and I thought that was interesting. You never got to that. So, what? A, where do you fall? Where do each you fall? What is evil? Was I mean, what? T describe to me an evil act, David Shields. The, the when the result of your actions harms Caleb. other people, <laughs> and and your and and your actions, you intentionally and knowingly do it, and know that it'll harm other people, and you do it anyway. That's not a bad definition. I think it's not bad. I mean, for me, it'd evil, be something you could like brainstorm ten different definitions, sure. and all be pretty close. Evil has, for me, what's striking to me again. I don't have any access to Bush that anyone else doesn't have, but it seems that I'm pretty sure he's not a, a conscience-stricken individual. He kind of has, from everything I've read about him, and I certainly have read my share about him, that. He has a relatively light patina of religiosity to cover over certain alcoholism and certain tendencies toward cocaine and alcohol from youth, and he kind of found a religious gesture through Billy Graham, you know, 30-plus years ago, and that somehow substitutes for conscience. I just think that when he performs very, very morally dubious or repellent acts he's just not somebody who in any way all right wrestles with his his own conscience just just curious what i mean i, I imagine iraq but what are his morally dubious or let's just say what are his most repellent acts i mean in the book you uh used the example of the carla faye tucker right his reaction after you that a, which you have a good you you explain well how that I mean, to me, it wasn't so much like, yes, she was guilty, no, she wasn't, but the way in which that was an interesting moment at a press conference at which Bush mocked her. He said, what would Carla Faye Tucker say to you now if she could speak to you? And he, and he said in this really nasty tone, please don't shoot me or please don't kill me, you know, like that. It was like just his yeah, delight yeah. and glee in her death to come there was something for me yeah she was doing the larry king talk show circuit at that time too i think but that he was like it there was. was something evil about that to me that See, he he can't to me he's a man without human empathy i mean he, he cannot imagine life in fact at one time bush said that he really had trouble imagining what life is like for people who aren't from the upper middle class the quote was much more richly textured than that, but he just said, I don't get what life is like if you're not privileged. And what's so interesting, almost all of Bush's malpropisms, almost they often have they often happen at moments at which he is feigning sympathy, such as I wanna put a pie on every family's table and you know the way that Bush <laughs> will mangle syntax and words there's a striking number of them that occur when he is pretending to care about human beings and clearly doesn't so for me his evil takes place I, I in the mean, realm but of listen to how judgmental that is I, I mean it's clear clearly he doesn't in all and which sort of bleeds into Half the half the country's sensibilities uh, that that are conservative, and no, I just said. I mean, he's a public figure. Th there, there are people that respect and admire him and thinks a great person, and that he actually does. I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other, but I think he cares a little bit more than you would give him credit for. I, I, and what I think, I think Jeb Bush. What possible evidence could you bring that if that there's George evil Bush in everyone, there's good in everyone? Well, I'd say that it, there's a. 
a differing uh, number of mirror neurons in the brains. In I mean, that I, I just, I mean, we're, we're talking evil, but we're, we're talking, you know, psychopathy. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, on a very small scale, you feel good when you help someone and you feel bad when you swear or curse or do something that causes, you know, well, but when you cut run, someone off intentionally, you flip someone off, you know, and then you go, "Why did I do that? Why, why, why am I being rel- asked?" Relatively these, these minor. Are, they're minor, but but on a grand scale, it's the same thing. I think, you know, if you know, during the George W. Bush years, he did more for Africa than Clinton, perhaps, and then you can make an argument about, you know, his, you know, instituting and starting a lot of lot of programs that, uh, you know, help with malaria and uh, AIDS, and and he. Put a lot of money to those countries, and he did more you know. so than Clinton. And and How, and mean, do, you th- yeah. do you think he just did that for p- politics to make himself seem a good person, or do you think he generally felt better knowing that? And we don't know, you know. I mean, they've all, always have these. There's no certainty how much it helped Africa or not, but I think he probably felt better about that. This I is mean, all just pure idle speculation. But, <laughs> but in any but case, one thing I not, like about the book is that you would. Think I think it's something to investigate, though, and you're not willing to investigate. No, it. I think it's he's, he's just just well, just a psychopath. But to if you. if I were to write a book about Bush, I would explore this. I'm just anyway. It's a funny gesture in the book. You would think. I mean, at one point, I wanted to actually take it out of the book because it seemed weird that I. It almost seemed like a funny contradiction that. In the book, generally, I think of Caleb as being, you know, the more engaged political person and in a way sort of the more sort of morally righteous person. But in the Bush-Cheney-Rumsfeld realm, I surprisingly take the sort of high moral ground, which sort of shows how contradictory things are. I mean, I haven't thought about this super carefully. If I were to write a book about Bush, and I have written a short chapter of my book, How Literature Saved My Life, and I think that's more telling. In that short chapter on Bush, I actually extend, I think, a kind of baffled sympathy for him and find all these rather trivial points of comparison. I'm just speaking off at the top of my hat. And I'm if, if I were silently to, letting you do it. If, <laughs> if, if I were to write a book about Bush, and I've written a three-page chapter on Bush, I extend a lot of human, if baffled, sympathy toward Bush. Well, I think the virtue of this book is that we get both sides of your argument. And as readers, we are engaged in both sides and internalizing both sides and finding we experience the contradictions that you have externally. We experience them internally. And that's, that's, nice. the, that's the great mm-hmm. virtue of any literature that it allows us to externalize our own, the things we don't want to think about, the things we don't want to talk about. And totally. No, both of us talk about things that we'd rather not talk about. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm going to bring up something that you talk <laughs> okay. about that I would rather not talk about, which is your attitude towards uh, book reviewers. Uh. Uh, this is not a place where you agree essentially. And both of you say that positive book reviews have no value or little value. I don't think I said No, no. Engaging book reviews have value. Right. But unfortunately, uh, the conflict of interest often, you know, I mean, we're talking here, you know, David Shields had reviewed Anna Monson in the New York Times and he didn't, you know, he was, you know, asked how well he knew him and he had only met, he didn't know him very well at all. But, you know, and I've written book reviews and there's always this question about Conflicts of interest, mm-hmm. and there's always a conflict of interest. Um, What's your question, though, Rick? Well, I feel like you wanted to ask. But I, I would just question. like to, to get down to my point. You know, David's been published by Anderson Monson. He he knows. I mean, it just he's got this pressure that if you I've write been a published positive, by Anderson Monson, what are you talking? You've about? been published by Anderson Monson's publisher, Gray Wolf. Oh my God, Caleb! So there, there's all, a hey, conflict the of interest. Ander Monson, not Anderson Monson. His name is Ander Cool, it, big deal. I, I told I, the New potato, York Times potato, potato. It was an potato. I mean, it's so ridiculous <laughs> what you're saying. I mean, it's. Just I'm just so, saying it's a conflict of interest. You know, all you, of that was spelled out when the book when I wrote the book review, and it's an extremely neutral book review. Like it, it's not this wildly praising review. Well, but it, it leads to what. Rick was asking us. Well, no, uh, you're right. Well, my concern is that 
it's very easy and fun, really, to rip into a book. I mean, that's as the, a reviewer, yeah. as a reviewer, you're getting it's revenge. The, you know. Well, it's just it's easier to be funny <laughs> when you're insulting somebody, sure. and, and it's really, really tough to write an engaging book review about a book you really like. It's a really good point. And for me, that's why, I mean, to be honest, with a couple of exceptions on my site, you'll find nothing but positive reviews. Well, for one reason, they fire books at me with a cannon. And I can tell you within two pages whether I'm going to like a book. The books I don't like are the books I don't review. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, for and me, so <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get past 20, 30 pages, and I, I can't write a legitimate review about a book like that. Right, yeah. I mean... Cool. I, I think in the book, sort of, Caleb argues well for the boringness of a certain kind of very formulaic positive review in which the reviewer is really invested in keeping his or her place in the literary firmament. Mm -hmm. To me, yeah, I'm, what he said, what he me, said. To me, I'm that's a good point for sure, but that's just built into human nature. We're part of civilization. For me, I'd flip it a little bit in the sense of saying I'm really interested in reviews that question the entire operation in the sense that here's this novel, here's that novel, here's this memoir. I don't, I want to change, it's like gun control. I want to change the discussion so profoundly wow. that, you know, oh gee, we're going to say you can't bring an AK-47 in, into your local convenience store like oh gee that's major gun control legislation you, you know like <laughs> the whole level of discussion is so banal i just you know i don't i read almost no book reviews anymore i mean i mean i just think the level of discussion is just unbelievably pedestrian well you talked about gun control let's get back to that well um, i was just no, David has some real strong views about dope. <laughs> I mean, he, he lectures me all the time about in this. In the sense that, you know, people, like, I just, you know, you'll hear a discussion in Congress or something about, well, we want to maybe say a seven-year-old at an Arizona gun range maybe shouldn't be, be given gun lessons and thereby kill her instructor her I think. instructor it's like that, i mean obviously uh, that was a joke by i think you know, something like that happened I, I don't know well yeah it was a recent case but it's like the way in which stuff gets discussed is so flat that i don't even want to be there so i think in the book I kind do of a veering from the book review uh, i do a discussion there. i do yeah. a few drive-bys of reviewers who i think are wildly wild james wood overpraised, uh, so. can't get enough of james wood can you <laughs> you know uh uh, I like this idea, too. I think it's very interesting. Uh, you guys talk about some very personal things in here, and I, I thought that was pretty brave. So, but there's also a lot of ellipses in, in the book. So how much of it, how was this edited afterwards? And did you just, like, run it into a dictation machine? There, is a, there is a thing at the end of the book where we kind of agree to agree that there's certain things we talked about that, will stay out of the book. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps 5% of, I don't know, 5,000 words. I can't even think of what, I mean, just like a few sort of I, I mean, ethical, by, by legal things, you mean? Ethical, legal things, and just some things that I didn't want pretty, in the book. Pretty minor and, and, stuff. And, and David has some, too. And, and in the film, too. That and in the film, yeah. There's stuff we talked about that we, that we got, got Which, rid uh, he started making, alluding to some of the things that I didn't want out which aren't even in the book, he started to do it in the film, and I got rather upset about that. And do we get to see that in the movie? You, the you, whole you film get is to an see, argument about You get to, what's to see the skim, the very the, the outer <laughs> surface of some of the... Sur you know, I, I, I acted angry because I, I thought that he was going to keep pushing and bring all of it out. And I, I think... I'm not sure how calculated of a chess move this was, uh, David, when, you, when you did it. Yeah. Because it had an effect... If it was just serendipity or did it, if you actually thought, if I bring this out, let's see what happens. It potentially could lead to something good uh, by pushing Caleb this way. But, yeah. Well, it yeah. was completely calculated, of course. But <laughs> what's cool about the film is, which I think we're going to show a portion of this afternoon. Are you going to the be there Rava, tonight? Uh, no. This afternoon? Rava Theater. But 
is basically, Rick, the film is that we had hoped the film was just going to be essentially a condensation of the book. But mm -hmm. what happened essentially on the first day of shooting is that a rather turbulent argument broke out between Caleb and me and James about what could and couldn't be used in the film regarding Caleb's life, which was, of course, a perfect emblem of this whole life art dilemma. Mm -hmm. So it's, we it's minor, but it, it was, you know, because there was only three days of shooting. It was, it was more like right in the mid. It was in the second day of shooting. Life art dilemma. That's and, uh, I mean, it was so basically that we threw out the script and argued. We spent, and it's really a 90-minute film that, that rotates around an argument that broke out between me and Caleb and the director, James Franco, about what risk, what revelation is worth it to make a work of art. How much of our own lives are we willing to sacrifice on the altar of art? Mm -hmm. Which is obviously a completely timeless question. There is no answer. Well, you must have some thoughts on it. Yeah, I... I'm still, Caleb, you know, how, how much are you willing to tell us? I told you, I feel like I told most of my secrets are still in the book as, mm -hmm. as far as my wife's first marriage, how I acted during her, or the, pregn or for the pregnancy of our first child, uh, what happened a couple times when I met transvestites. And yeah, these, some of these secrets uh, still resound. I mean, I also talk about my own, uh, side of the family mm -hmm. and that's potentially going to cause you know and, and these were conscious decisions of, of mine uh, that I thought would make the book better and, and you know when we recorded when we went out to the mountains I just brought them up because I thought they were very interesting to talk, talk about but you know when we have you know 400,000 words you know uh, we always I'm always thinking you know if I don't want it in always take it out yeah, yeah. Mm. i mean there's a lot of stuff there, there's some stuff that um no longer is there and i think i think a lot of the stuff that david might not have wanted in i think he more of that's out than of what i wouldn't have wanted in hmm. i don't think that's true but uh, but i would i would have to state the nature of what those things are i can't even think what those are but in, in any case i, I could do it well, I have a public uh, life that you i mean like you know i mean <laughs> without pretending i'm like some big you know James Franco-like figure. It, it's a, he, but relates it, you know, to how protective you are of your career. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, my entire career is related to the way I curate my own emotional life, and I curate it. Like I, it's what this wonderful phrase of Alex Papadamus uh, at Grandland called. I think it was his piece uh, called self-deconstructive nonfiction. I mean, that's my thing. I demolish myself on the page in order to get, I hope, at truths or what I think of as truths about human nature. And so, yeah, I control that. Like, yeah, I'm, that's, that's, that's my whole literary, artistic, spiritual journey. I mean, you're often talking about bravery, and I think by not putting it in and not revealing it to the reader was not an act of bravery. But I, it was an act of control, every, certainly. Everything I do, I mean, again, we've been around this over and over again. There's nothing that you say in the book that that's terribly brave. I mean, you, you were worried brave. about uh, I say your wife's book, mammogram, like I how say, she would react to hearing that. I say that. in the book that, uh, that there's an impasse in Let's put it this marriage. way. The difference is when your wife read it, she didn't even care. Because when my wife heard about it, she had a reader. cow. Because... Lori so, loves the book because she... Because your secrets are relatively tame. It's so ridiculous. It's Caleb. true. What? And the ones that aren't me, tame aren't in the book. Now, let me so ask you a question. Your wife reads your books while you're writing them and gives you feedback? No, no not at no. all. Neither of you. Okay. No. Correct. Yeah, all right. So there's a Chinese wall. You just do your thing, let it go, and then your wife looks at it, or maybe not. I mean, that's a little bit of a simplification. Uh, you allude, she ha has she read all of How Literature Saved Your Life or My Life or whatever? I think she glanced. I think she read portions of it. That she's, you know, the Lori's terribly smart, and she's not hugely intellectual or hugely literary, but she's a really good reader who, mm -hmm. who loves, say, David Foster Wallace and Mylon Kundera and all these, you know, sort of wonderful writers. 
And I think that, that my work has never been her, her favorite thing. And I think it's an interesting, mild tension in our marriage. But anyway, that she's read about three quarters or four fifths of, of this book, and to my surprise and delight, uh, absolutely loves it. When you, it strikes me that this one would have made and might still make at some point a, a fabulous podcast between you two. I mean, you can oh, just the actual <laughs> book. The actual book and or just you can just sit down once a week on, on Skype and and, mm-hmm. uh, and do something that would... Uh, It'd be like sports just, talk, it's literary talk. We like <laughs> have four books to review and a couple controversies. If we can survive <laughs> this book tour, that will be a major accomplishment. But um, yeah. in any case... Um, yeah, the whole, anyway, to me it's interesting. Each of us is ludicrously convinced that he reveals more than the other person, and I think that speaks to the difference in our sensibilities. To me, what I say in maybe a minor key about my marriage, that our marriage with Lori and me reached a real impasse at least twice, to me, that has an emotional IED about it. It's like, you know, it has an emotional, it, you know, it's like, a, and a number of reviewers have already talked about that, that, you know, I really, that I tried to say it in a respectful and nuanced way, but I say, you know, like any marriage, that, that we really had hit a wall. And that's the kind of intimate secret which I specialize in. Whereas oh, Caleb, patting I himself th- on the back there. Well, let, no, let me just no, give I'm just him some credit. Myself, where I specialize. You specialize in these sort of. I don't specialize in you anything. Specialize in these sort of. I am. Oh yes, <laughs> I received oral sex from a transvestite. That's not bragging. It it has no it has no kick. It's like, it's it's a kind of um, <sighs> humble brag. Whereas to actually go to your own it's nerve not a ending, humble brag. That's you know it's like oh yes I was having all these adventures in. In, in whatever country it was in. And so the point I, that we go endlessly around, both I mean, in person I mean, and in the book, is that I'll, <laughs> I'll write something such as... I just think growing up with they're relatively stutter, tame. Growing up with a stuttering problem as a kid has made all feeling to me feel slightly secondhand because I'm so aware of how to speak feeling rather than actually experience it. But it, that's what you wanted to express. You, did, you didn't have this part of you that, I gotta keep this a secret. I, I just uh, don't even just, know what you're just, talking about. The you're point like being, acting like you're revealing parts of yourself, but that's what, that was the whole point. And, and sometimes revealing what you don't want to reveal. I, I can't follow you. I don't have, don't have any idea what you're talking about. Can I, can I be a little more succinct? If you could be concise yeah. about it, well, yeah. I mean, you're blabbing and, I, you know, I still think you're getting about 55% of what we're doing right here. Anyway, the point being, you know, he, he feels like he had this problem with stuttering, and he's using it as an example of the bravery, the revealing the, the soul and, and all this, but the confession, confessional nature of it is, is he's just basically trying to express as accurately as he can, you know, his own pain and, and suffering and, and turmoils growing through his, his stuttering from childhood to now and it's a very fascinating worthy subject but i don't you know i wouldn't place this word the word brave or courage to do something like that it's Uh, more courageous to talk about it than it is to write about it perhaps perhaps i don't see a big difference but in in any case i think perhaps caleb is on to something which is i think again this is not meant as some big I hope, some kind of bragging, but, you know, I have written all these books. Some of them are very confessional. And so, in a way, to be honest, most of these secrets I've sort of written about, whether it has to I do... I will give... Can I just you know, step in to give you some race, credit here? Race, mortality, language, sex, voyeurism, vicariousness, godlessness. I mean, like, I've kind of uploaded most of these secrets. I can't make up stuff that I haven't... Like, I major in secrecy unveiling, so... Like, what am I going to do? Say, I used to be a girl in my previous life. Like, no, no. I wasn't, you know? I was just going to give you credit that you have damaged or, or your sister and you don't get along as well as a result of this. So that, that, is, that would be considered a risk. You mean in the book? Well, you say that to me and, you, and, and in real life, I assume. Yeah, we, I mean, I think so, she'll be upset 
when she reads the book. But like, and and she had she didn't like you talking about other aspects of your family, even in uh, say Handbook for Drowning, which was very closely yeah, and my father and mother and sister and Lori and Natalie. I mean, like, and you know, I don't know what more I could possibly. Do. I mean, I, it's a very 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 difficult thing for an autobiographical writer to to wrestle with. I don't have the answer to it. I, I was worried when Lori read the book, and so far she seems to really like it a lot. I think she frankly likes it a lot because you articulate a lot of her positions that, you know, I think that, oh, I don't know if that's exactly true, but that she loves, <laughs> that she loves the, the way that Lori said it was, and she goes, I don't know exactly what she meant, but she said something like, it won't work if it was just one of you. Well, obviously it won't work if it was just one of us. Cause it's, but I do know what she meant, which is if you had just written a book about all of your adventures, yawn. If I had just written a book about kind of reality hunger 3.0, yawn. But it's the comedy of the difference in perspective. Like I say that, that life is white, you say it's black, and the book is in the space between us that neither of us is right, but we're both just jamming against each other. Like that's the book yeah. that, that Melanie Thernstrom conveys so well in the blurb that she wrote, which is like the book is the comedy and tragedy of two human beings butting heads. It's not my stories, it's not your stories, it's not I'm right, it's not you're right. It's the book is the comedy of saying, I think you're totally wrong. Like, that's the book to me. <laughs> well, it's a combination. It's an absolute statement, which is I would suggest a comedy absolute. and horror, and the horror, self-horror, which we call embarrassment. It's that kind of combination of those two, that, you know, the comedic, your, your interchanges are funny, and your revelations are funny, and kind of, hor even as they are horrifying and somewhat embarrassing. How are and they horrifying, though, Rick? How do you mean? Just because they're a little <laughs> bit cringe-making? Yeah, cringe, yeah. And this, the second that you reveal something that is embarrassing to you, any reader can't help but think, wow. What would I Well, think? I've got him topped. I did. I've got him what? <laughs> I've got him topped. I did oh, this I see. terrible I've done worse things. things. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody's their own worst critic. It's a really great point. I mean, yeah, yeah. What did you think, Caleb, of that student at the reading a few a few nights ago? That young woman who said, "How dare you guys reveal secrets about your marriage?" I sort of felt like, oh, the book has to have secrets, otherwise she'll it's change in twenty deep. years. I know. Like to me, it's like, don't you think? Unless that we said uncomfortable things. The book is DOA if we all just say, oh, gee, I like my life. How is your life? I mean, it yeah, depends she, she on, asked me. on uncomfortable things, I think. Well, she she, she got married? visibly up. Oh, oh, she, no, she was just probably kid. between <laughs> 18 and 20. Married. And she seemed, she had read the book and she seemed bothered by the fact that I hadn't asked my wife permission before I had written it and that she didn't know until after. Mm, well, that's a good point. But and it is a good point. But that's also and, the uh, point. And my wife is bothered. <laughs> so How is it at the point, Rick? How do you mean? Well, the point is if to go to some place where you're uncomfortable and, and to take your readers there so that they get there within their own lives. Yeah. And if you're not taking that risk, the reader's not going to take the risk. That's beautiful. That's great. And that's what you that's want us point, all yeah. to do. And that's, how we're, that's why we're all sitting here to get ourselves to a place where we can look at the terrible things in ourselves and say, well, maybe next time when I pull out the gun, I'm not going to aim it at my foot. <laughs> that's great. I, oh. I, that's where we have to, that's how we have to do right, it. Right, right. Just, just thinking of a kind of tangential thing about, about wives and all that. But we, well, just, we just saw a Gone Girl this weekend. <laughs> oh, and, that was and bad. Boy, Please my, tell me you agree that was the world's worst movie. Did you see it? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to give you a, a movie review, but my wife is always, Ben Affleck, that's you. That's you. <laughs> I, and, she, and she's still in this betrayal thing of, hmm. I, I mean, she's really taken with a great humor. She's, she's a great mom, great work. I mean, she's kind of better than me in every way, which way possible. Spin, but she's a... Uh, spin control there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
So I'm pretty lucky to. Uh, good luck with that. And yeah. yeah. Good luck with that spin job back at home, Caitlin. Yeah, yeah. Well, well are now, you listening? Uh, Wife? <laughs> so do you guys think you'll continue this quarrel? So this is going to be a kind of a live touring uh, bicker, bickering fest uh, around the nation. Is this your first stop? or? First, we did Seattle, then San Francisco, LA, Portland. Then I'm going to do some East Coast things. We didn't think Caleb was. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that, I, I'm that, kind of. Uh, that we did a travel. Got a few beefs remaining here. We have. We. I'm just doing. Like, I'm going to Providence. My daughter lives in Providence. I'm going to do Boston and New York. Just we're going to get Caleb Monquez to argue with me. In fact, <laughs> Richard Who? Nash. Richard Nash is going to do is me. going to do you, and we're going to call it. I think you're. T- totally right because because uh, yeah. richard agrees with me and uh. somebody named glenn <laughs> glenn kurtz at mcnally jacks is going to talk to me anyway right, well, have them have them listen to the podcast or whatever exactly uh, but anyway it's fun i mean i don't emulate think, me a little more and the okay. movie is you know we'll hope the movie comes out shortly and then but no i mean this is uh so how many uh, comparisons with uh, all the pre- progenitors do you expect, and how much do you care about them, well, and how much were you Im- that's really a, influenced That's a great by question. I'd like to take that because I don't think we're – my dinner with Andre or the trip, which I see we're getting a lot more Andre than trip comparisons when, when uh, the book is talked about. But uh, I think, you know, we like those. We appreciate those films. But, I mean, I went in – you know, and, and David, when we first talk, brought up this project, he – wanted this as a model, and it's great to have a model, but I just think we're just something different. Um, we are conscious about it, and I think certain readers will like that, some others won't. I think it's kind of, for people that haven't watched the movies, I think it makes the movies interesting. Uh, and yeah. I, I just want to be something different. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it was a good move that we talked about them. In the sense that if we pretended that we invented this form, when it goes back to you know, Socrates to Plato and Socrates and Absolutely. the dialogues, and it comes all the way up as I think the book cover says, you know, through um, through car talk, you know, I mean it's not exactly a new form. There's Laurel and Hardy, there's Dee Dee and Gogo, there's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's an I mean it's a fascinatingly timeless form of a Jungian two different types of of being are warring to own the human soul. And Caleb and I are like these weird kind of Laurel and Hardy, Dee Dee and Gogo. There's a yin and yang to us that, that fascinates me. And I think if, our, if all we are is Sideways 2.0 or the Trip 2.0 or, or my dinner, like, then you're just one more shtick. But I think if our book has a claim on the form the way I think art has to advance, the way I think, the thing I'm proud of with the book is I think it's more nervous-making than those other works. I think our work, again, I'd have to go back, our work is less, in a way, polished, that we're not the impersonators that they are in the trip, that we're not the sort of men about town that, uh, that my dinner is, and we don't have a huge heavy breathing narrative of, of sideways, but to me, we there's a rawness, a visceral quality, an anxiousness, and a, a I think a kind of there's a blood and guts that's pretty alive. It feels like Laurie, my wife, she just said this is so alive. I think I mean again I'm I'm quoting my <laughs> wife on my book, but that you know that I think the work feels discomfort making and that's what i was going to say there's no higher discomfort reading yeah as opposed to comfort reading and yeah i don't even know what comfort reading is that to me is called you know a sleeping pill like there's i'm not interested in comfort and i think the book is discomforting and that's that's to me it's a sine qua non of art i've been speaking with david shields and caleb powell or arguing with them about their book. I think you're totally wrong. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank Thanks you, a lot, Rick. Rick. It was really fun and really uncomfortable. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.